Fire always falls. The question is, where will it fall for you? Last week, we began a short two-week series through the little book of Malachi. And we began by hearing the whole book. Today, we will end by hearing the whole book. And hopefully, hearing it on either side will give us a greater perspective on the heart of God for us and his plans for us. But as we're surveying this little book in these two weeks, we're asking two questions. Last week was, why did a messenger need to come to God's people? And today, we'll focus on what would the messenger do when he came? Last week, we heard God confront his people because of their empty worship. The priests, the leaders, the ones who were supposed to set the example, had failed in their task of teaching the people the ways of God. They themselves were not following God. They had turned aside from God's ways and they weren't teaching God's people how to walk in his ways. And so all of them, the priests and the people, were engaging in empty, heartless ritualism. So the reason that another messenger since the priests had failed as the messengers of God, the reason another and better messenger had to come was because of the people's empty worship. But what will the messenger do when he comes? And that's our focus for this morning. We will read a short part of the book at the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 to begin our time this morning. Malachi Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God responds, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then... I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner 
and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord for us. So what will Yahweh's messenger do when he comes? He will transform Yahweh's people with refining fire. What do we see about God in these verses? How is he at work? Three things. First, God warns. God warns. Why does he warn? Well, if you remember from last week, the very first words that God spoke were four things, four words. I have loved you, says the Lord. And that heartbeat pulses throughout the rest of the book of Malachi, underlying every hard word that God is saying. I have loved you. We hear it expressed again later in the book, actually the verse right after the passage we just read, chapter three, verse six, where God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God shows his love in that he is patient with his people and he does not immediately judge them for their sin. But another way that God is loving is that he warns his people to turn back to him. A warning is loving. Is a mother not loving when she warns her toddler away from the stove burner? Is a father not loving when he warns his son against the lure of seductive women? Is a sister not loving when she warns another member about the deadliness of gossip? Is the church not loving when it warns a man about his treatment of his wife? And is God not loving when he warns his people to turn back to him? God warns because he loves his people. How does he warn? Well, in this passage, he warns by sending a messenger. God's, or the people say in verse 17, they make these accusations against God. And as you remember from last week, there's this disputation all the way through the book. God makes a statement. The people contradict him with a question, accusing him being skeptical of him. And God answers. Here again, God finally gets to a point where he says, you have wearied me with your words. What have they said? They've basically accused God of not being good because they say, if God was here, wouldn't he judge people who do evil? Evil people are prospering. They're getting away with stuff. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. So God must not be good. The second thing they accuse God of in verse 17 is of being absent. Where is the God of justice? If God isn't acting, he must be far away. So God's not good or he's absent. And is that not our heart's tendency when we don't see God at work? 
God must not be good after all. Or God's not here. But God doesn't bring justice in the moment of transgression. Why? Because he is patient with us. And so he sends a messenger. Who is this messenger in verse 1 of chapter 3? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now, in verse 1, there's actually multiple people addressed, and it can be a little confusing, and a lot of writers have tried to work through who are these different people, because you have a preparing messenger, we're talking about right here, and then just a couple of lines later, you have another messenger. Is it the same one? Is it different? I think it's different, and I'll tell you why in a moment. The preparing messenger, who is he? We don't have a name here. Look at the end of Malachi's book, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what's Elijah going to do? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God's going to send Elijah. What does that mean? Is he going to resurrect the prophet Elijah from the grave and bring him back? Or is this an Elijah-like figure? If we fast forward 450 years, there's an old man, a priest named Zechariah, married to a woman named Elizabeth. They're way past the age of getting pregnant and they've got no kids. And they've been praying that God would give them a child. Zechariah is doing his job in the temple and an angel shows up. And here's what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And what does the angel say about this John? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. John is his name. And if we go back to the beginning of the gospel of Mark, where we've been for a number of months, the very first words that we hear in Mark are these. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he sneaks in a little quote from Malachi here too. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So who is this preparing messenger in Malachi? John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Lord. He clears the way of obstacles. It's like a messenger running ahead of the king saying, he's coming, he's coming, get ready. He clears the way of obstacles and he turns the hearts of the people to the Lord so that they will be ready. But this messenger isn't the point. There's a greater one who's coming. And so God not only warns through a messenger, 
but God transforms through a messenger. You'll notice in the middle of this verse one of chapter three, chapter three, verse one, there's this change in perspective. So here's God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, sounds like he's talking about himself. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, not my temple, but his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Interesting. So here Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is making a distinction between himself and this other messenger, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. And those two phrases, the Lord and the messenger of the covenant are connected. So whoever the Lord is, he's also the messenger of the covenant. This term Lord is not the same that we've been hearing all through the book. We've been hearing that the title Lord of hosts or Yahweh of heavenly armies. This title, Lord, is the name Adonai or master or owner of all things. And he is the messenger of the covenant. And what does he do or what is he like? Look down at the end of verse or at verse two. He is coming But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So this figure sounds divine. Nobody can stand before him. And he's like a fire. So what can we say about this second messenger? The messenger of the covenant. He is divine because he does a supernatural work, but he is distinct from Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. So what does this messenger do? Two things. The master or the Lord comes to his people unexpectedly. He comes to his temple suddenly, it says. And that means all at once, in an instant. Now, this sounds kind of strange because if you've got a messenger running ahead of the king saying, he's coming, he's coming, wake up, he's coming. If you've got a messenger running before the king, you would think the people would be ready when he comes. But he comes unexpectedly. Why? Because he didn't look like they expected him to look. And he didn't do what they expected him to do as we've been seeing all through the gospel of Mark, when Jesus of Nazareth stepped onto the scene of Galilee, he didn't appear to be the Lord and master of all things. He seemed very ordinary. The prophet Isaiah had said of him, he has no form or majesty that we should look at him. Oh, look, there he is. And he had no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't on the front of People magazine. When Jesus erupted in the temple, when the Lord suddenly came to his temple, the religious leaders, the very ones who were looking for him and who wanted him to come, didn't even know it was him. And they responded to his action by trying to kill him. They approached him and they said, give us a sign to prove by what authority you're doing all this stuff in the temple. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, 
I will raise it up. And they say, you're crazy. It took 46 years to build this temple. But John in his gospel says, Jesus was not talking about the building. Jesus was talking about his body. And so in this, Jesus is beginning something new. He's shutting down the old system of worship where you come to a building and you offer a sacrifice and Jesus is starting something new. You approach God through him, not through a building. But how is Jesus accomplishing this great change in worship? The master comes unexpectedly, but the messenger changes his people completely. He is the messenger of the covenant. What does it mean that Jesus is the messenger of the covenant? A messenger is someone who communicates. So Jesus is the one who speaks the covenant of God, his agreement with people. And Jesus is also the one who carries out the covenant for his people. He accomplishes it. Why do we need a messenger of the covenant? Well, look down again at verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Do you remember Psalm 1? There's a stark contrast between the righteous who are like a tree planted by the rivers of water and the wicked who are like chaff that the wind drives away. When the messenger of the covenant comes, no one can stand before him. They're like chaff. And so Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the psalmist says, well, then who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who is that? For none of us have pure hearts if all of us are turning away. No one can stand before the Lord. And so what must happen? The Lord must cleanse his people. He works the cleansing. Isaiah says, the Lord saw that there was no man. It's almost like the Lord is looking around. There was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And so what did he do? His own arm brought salvation. He did it. Here's another glorious evidence of Yahweh's love for his people. He knows that sinful mankind cannot change themselves. Sinful mankind cannot bring ourselves back into his way. And so he, through his son Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, brings about the deliverance that we need. And how does he do it? His cleansing comes through fire. Chapter 3, verse 2. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit 
And check out this image. Uh, somebody who is working with metals, they're sitting over a hot fire and there's a molten liquid, molten metal in the pot. And so here's a picture of the messenger of the covenant sitting over the molten metal. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And so in this, in this fire image, we begin to see two themes that the prophets give us. The themes of salvation and condemnation and how they flow together. The day of the Lord is the great day which brings together both deliverance and destruction, hope and terror. And where do we see this most clearly? In the cross of Jesus. Because on the Mount of Crucifixion, as a common man was executed between two thieves, his suffering may have seemed normal to the onlookers, but the invisible reality was that the eternal and fiery wrath of Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, was being poured out on him there. Fire fell at the cross. But the wondrous hope for sinners is that if we are united to Jesus, if we are hidden in Jesus, if we come under the cross of Jesus, all of God's fiery wrath against our rebellion is exhausted on him. And therefore, the fire for us is cleansing not condemning. The fire of God is exhausted on the messenger and therefore the messenger can cleanse and change and transform the very hearts of the people who were bent away from him. He refines us inwardly so that we are changed outwardly and we are new people. And I love the picture that C.S. Lewis gives of this in one of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. If you've read this, you're familiar with a character named Eustace. As, as C.S. Lewis writes, Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved the name. He was an annoying and arrogant boy who complains about everything and picks fights with everyone. And due to his greed... He's actually transformed into a dragon. So what he had been all along, he's now shown to be on the outside, an ugly, terrifying beast. But when the lion Aslan shows up, Aslan tells him that he must undress. In other words, take off the dragon's skin. So what does Eustace do? He scrapes away a layer of skin like a snake losing its out, outer, outer layer. He's still a dragon. He tries a second time. He's still a dragon. He tries a third time. He's still a dragon. Aslan says, you must let me do it. So he lies down. And as Eustace says later to a friend, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, 
It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And in that peeling, he is transformed into the boy he should be. And everybody around him realizes the change. When you go through fire, you will be transformed. When you go through the cleansing furnace, you will be changed. And so what is the result of this fiery cleansing? Look down at the end at verse four, end of verse three. After this refiner purifies the sons of Levi, the end of verse three, they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So these sons of Levi who were bringing faulty, maimed sacrifices to God now bring pure offerings to him. Why? Because their hearts have been made righteous and therefore they bring offerings which are right to the Lord. Instead of empty and heartless and dead ritualism, now the people of God bring joyful and eager praise which flows out of renewed refined hearts. So believer, do you know how the book of Malachi describes you? Four things. Loved by God. Refined by God. Spared by God. And ultimately, Healed by God. The son of righteousness has risen, as Zechariah would say later when his boy John was born. He said, this boy will go before the Lord. And as the Lord appears, the son of righteousness is rising. So the son of righteousness has risen. The day of the Lord has dawned. The light of eternity has broken into the blackness of our world because Jesus has come. And since his arrival 2,000 years ago, his light has continued to spread across our globe. The sun is rising and there will come a time when the sun will reach its zenith. And the final day of the Lord will burst upon the scene and the son of righteousness will pour down its heat of judgment. But we who are hidden in Christ will be spared for the fire of judgment then will hold no condemnation for us because it has already fallen upon Christ for us. Therefore, those blazing rays in that day will carry for us only perfect joy and healing. So, brothers and sisters, eagerly wait for this final day. Stand in awe of this blazing God and live in fear before him as he calls us to do. And second, tell others. Tell others that the day has dawned. The day of judgment has not yet come, but the day has dawned and there is still hope. Fire for the believer is cleansing, but there is another side to this fire. Third, God consumes. 
After talking about his messenger of the covenant who will refine his people, Yahweh says that he will come and he will come for a different purpose as we've just alluded to. Verse five of chapter three, then I will draw near to you for judgment. This phrase draw near is usually used in scripture for people who come to God in repentance. And it's also used of God as he responds to them in forgiveness. We draw near to him and he draws near to us. But here God says, I'm drawing near and it will be for judgment. And he will be a swift witness because this God is the all-seeing, all-knowing God who sees every single one of us and knows every one of our works. And in that day, there will be no justification. There will be no excuses. There will be no bribes. This God is impartial and he will witness against every single human who has strayed from his path. And he is not merely the witness, but he himself is the judge. Look at chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. The perfect witness who knows everything is also the perfect judge who will bring ultimate destruction. And this day will be more terrifying than we can even imagine. Nothing like this has ever happened in human history. For those who are never hidden in Christ, there will be no protection from the fire in that day. So friend, fire always falls. The question is, where will it fall for you? If you are apart from Christ, how does the book of Malachi describe you? Rejected by God. Condemned by God. And ultimately consumed by God. But that day has not yet come. The day, the final day of the Lord is not yet here. Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the final day of the Lord is not here. There is hope for you if you will turn to Christ and come under Christ and be united to Christ so that the fiery wrath of God for you may fall on him instead. Turn to him. Malachi warns you to do so. And so as I read this book, this last time, believers and unbelievers consider the love of God for us, the love to warn the love to transform, 
but also final judgment upon those who do not submit to his love. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau, I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked people and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you Profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then, Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then... Once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word for us. Fire always falls. The question is, where will it fall for you? Let's pray. Lord in heaven, thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in Jesus. Thank you for the hope that you have given to us in him. Thank you for the cleansing that we find in him. And I pray for those here today who have not yet been hidden in Christ, who have not yet been united to Christ, please work in them to run to him today and help us who are in Christ to speak to others of the joy and hope and warning from your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.